Well, this morning we continue our series called Follow Me. And as we work through the Gospels of the Bible, we are going to find out that at certain moments and times, Jesus gave invitations to individuals that were uh, found to be in the two words, follow me. Two very common, ordinary words. But when they proceeded from the mouth of an extraordinary individual, and they were offered to ordinary people, and when those individuals responded to that invitation, within several years after that response, the Bible tells us that those individuals turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. I believe that these two simple words, when we look at them in the breath of Christianity and in the entirety of the Word of God, become some of the most profound words that we find within the Bible. I have often discovered in my personal Bible study that it's the smallest words of the Bible that sometimes carry the greatest impact. And truly, this invitation would be uh, definitely qualify as one of those places where two simple words offered by an extraordinary individual, Jesus himself, given to ordinary man, can have a profound impact and a radical change upon a person's life. When Jesus began his ministry, he called people to follow him. He simply asked them, follow me. And then preceding that invitation, he qualified it. He gave stipulations to it. And therefore requiring the individual to count the cost of what they were about to do. And in so doing, he was setting a proper expectation for those that he was inviting to follow him that they may decide if they choose to follow him or not. Some did. Some did not. I think you and I need to understand that Christianity begins with a pursuit. It is not a pursuit of us towards God. It is a pursuit of God towards us. And once God finds us, it then becomes a pursuit of us towards Him. I like what one pastor wrote, and I'm going to quote it again for you. Christianity does not begin with our pursuit of Christ, but with Christ's pursuit of us. Christianity does not start with an invitation we offer to Jesus, but with an invitation Jesus offers to us. And as we respond to that invitation, as we follow him, you and I then become a disciple of Jesus Christ. A disciple simply meant one who follows. It was a relationship between a student and a teacher, and it was a very common term that was used at the time of Christ. Their educational system was different than ours today. They followed their teachers, and not only did what the teachers told them to do, but imitated the teachers in what the teachers did. They emulated the, the actions of their teacher. And they would join themselves to certain teachers, and that's the way a teacher's popularity was gained, by the number of disciples that that teacher had. And that's 
the manner in which a teacher would separate himself from the rest of the educational arena there at that time. And those were the teachers that were well sought after with the ones that had the largest following, the largest number of disciples. As one put it, discipleship should be defined as this. It is the process of devoting oneself to a teacher to learn from and to become more like them. For the Christian, this refers to the process of learning the teachings of Jesus and following after his example in obedience to the power of the Holy Spirit. Discipleship not only involves the process of becoming a disciple, but of making of other disciples through the teaching and evangelism. As one followed then, he said, follow me means consistent discipleship, and steadfast pursuit of Christ, even if it requires us to lay down our lives for him. It means continuing Christ's work in the way he wants it done and not in the way we want it done. Today in America, we discover that there's a perplexity that many Christians are finding themselves within. That perplexity is often notated, and these comments become symptoms of this perplexity, when you hear things such as, what does it mean to be a Christian? There's a lot of Christians that are going through an identity crisis today. They don't know what it means to be a Christian. And as a result, they are wandering rather than following they are drifting rather than discerning. Then we have those who are preoccupied with the question, well, what is God's will for my life? What is the call that he has upon my life? Now they're looking for purpose within this newfound relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I have discovered now that often those questions stem from and proceed from the uh, fact that they didn't know what they were getting themselves into from the beginning. They didn't fully understand what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And they certainly then didn't count the cost of following Jesus Christ. See, I believe that when the gospel is presented properly... Correct expectations are then formed within the follower, the hearer, the one who responds to it. The proper expectation is then formed. When we try to sell Jesus, market Jesus, make Jesus appealing to a person's flesh, it is often then that we create false expectations in the hearer's minds. And they then begin to follow Jesus with these false expectations. And when those expectations don't come to pass, they said, you know, they get freaked out. And they're like, what happened? What does it mean to be a Christian? Why am I not experiencing all the things that I wanted to experience? Why isn't God helping me fulfill my personal potential as an individual human? Why is he not blessing me and making all my dreams come true? Because he never promised to. That's not Christianity. That's something we've made it today. Because we want it to be appealing. We want as many people as possible to respond. We want to uh, get hyped up all over the numbers of the people who respond. And yet we don't even know the quality of the people who respond. 
And then we've created individuals who think they're saved when in actuality they have no idea what the gospel is. And therefore, they have a, now they carry a false assurance thinking that, yeah, I'm good with God. Yeah, I'm great. And in all actuality, they've never truly heard the gospel. They don't know what it means to repent. They don't understand the cataclysmic effect that sin has had upon their lives. And then they don't understand that one who follows Jesus Christ is just that. One who follows Jesus Christ. I am not leading God. God is leading me. Not my will be done any longer. His will be done. These are so important to our discussion this morning. Because I know all of us here probably have met individuals that have responded to some gospel presentation, and I use that really loosely today, and then they don't understand why it didn't work out. If I have one more person tell me, I tried Jesus and he just didn't work for me. No, he's not supposed to work for you. You're supposed to serve him. All right, let's get it right from the beginning. I am all fired up today. Good day to switch to decaf. Hey, I got to tell you, this is the problem, folks. Where Jesus clearly told us in his word what he expects from us. And if we have a right understanding from the beginning, then when difficulties arise and troubles occur, we're not all freaked out. Hey, I became a Christian and all of a sudden the world hates me. What's happening? Well, Jesus told you it was going to happen from the beginning. Nobody told me that. How am I going to be popular? There's no way I can survive with only 10 friends on Facebook. But from the beginning, Jesus told us what was going to happen. And it's really important that you and I understand that from the beginning, right? Having proper expectations. How many of you have ever entered into some situation where you had an expectation and you found that that expectation was totally overblown or totally misconstrued and then you got involved in it, you got in the middle of it, you bought it, and then you got it home and said, this isn't what I expected at all. And you can understand how Christianity has been leveraged in that way to so many people. Because they want to make it appealing. They want people to respond. They want people to fill their churches. But do you know, sometimes Jesus gave messages, and instead of people responding positively, more people left? I've never seen a church advertise on their sign outside, this Sunday we're going to have a message to thin the crowd. Never seen it. And yet so often that's exactly what, Jesus, what happened to Jesus when he started preaching and he started teaching and the people are like, no, I'm, I didn't sign up for this. I wanted the food. I wanted to get healed. I wanted to watch the miracles. I like it when he yells at the Pharisees. Those are the things I want to watch. What do you mean? Self-denial? I'm out. Take up my cross? I'm gone. Denying myself? No, it's all about me. And as a result, they left. Now, I'm trying to bring us back as a church to just an understanding, an objective understanding of what Jesus said from the beginning. And we're going to be looking at statements as we go through the Gospels, and we are going to find places where he invited people to follow him, 
And they either responded positively or they responded negatively. And we're going to look at those things to qualify what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The call of a Christian is to follow him. That's what, it, that's what Christianity is. We're following him. And he sets proper expectations through these invitations. And you and I need to look at them honestly and objectively and say, okay, this is what Christianity is. And as a result, therefore, we will be able to negotiate and to weather the difficulties of this life in a much more mature fashion. Today we're going to be challenged right from the start. Today we're going to be challenged, follow me to a new pursuit. From the very beginning, Jesus is going to ask us, he's going to require us to abandon our own pursuits and adopt his. He's going to ask us to abandon our own pursuits and adopt his. And for many of us here today, that could be very difficult. Because some of you here today may have uh, entered into this relationship with God thinking that Jesus was a supplement to everything that you wanted to do in life. That Jesus was simply here to help you obtain your personal goals in life. And maybe God is asking you to surrender all of that. To lay it all before him. He may even be asking you to abandon it completely to follow after him. Now, you're going to have to chew on that in your mind and in your heart yourself from this point going forward. But today we are going to be confronted with that reality where God is calling us to follow him to a new pursuit. Let's read our text in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. In these few verses, there are five questions that I observe that we need to ask ourselves and we need to consider. And the very first question that I want all of us to ask ourselves based upon this text is who found who? Who found who? The picture that we get is that these men were going about their daily business. They were fishermen by trade on the Sea of Galilee. Galileans. Their entire life they had been prepared to take the family business from their fathers. That was a total common practice within that culture. 
And it appears that one day as they were going through their normal routines, something that they had set their entire lives upon, one individual interrupts them and says, follow me. So who found who? These men weren't pursuing Jesus. Jesus was pursuing them. And I want you to notice that this is absolutely countercultural to that time. As I stated earlier, disciples at that time, they joined themselves to teachers that they chose. But here, Jesus chooses them. And he wasn't looking for a large following, for we know that he specifically chose 12. One then fell, and one was gained later. 12. Who found who? Jesus found them. And for a Jewish person, if they were to read this and they were to understand that this is the way that he was gaining disciples, they would have concluded right away, this is different. This is out of the ordinary. This is extraordinary for a teacher to ask of them, somebody 30-some years old, to ask of them to leave everything and to follow after him. I love when people tell me, when I ask them, hey, when did you get saved? And they proceed then to say, well, I found Jesus 20 years ago. Or I found Jesus last week. I I, I just want to stop them all graciously. And again, I don't want to get bent over semantics. But their implication is, is this, that it was Jesus who was lost and not them. Jesus never gets lost. He's omnipotent. He knows everything. He can't get lost. He made everything. He doesn't take a wrong turn and say, great, now where am I? It is you and I who were lost. And it was Jesus who found us. It was Jesus who pursued us and called us to himself. We must understand that because it's a scary thing to be lost and unfortunately many today don't understand that they are lost, wandering in darkness, living a mere life of existence that is spiritually dead and that will end with eternal destruction. Being lost in and of itself is scary enough but not knowing that an individual is lost is another thing altogether. Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. It is him who found us from the very beginning. Now it is interesting, because I think of a scenario in my personal life where I got lost. It is interesting to think that when you think of the relationships between a parent and a child, it's always the child who wanders from the parent. It's always the child who ends up lost. The parent knows exactly where they are at, though separated from their child. I don't think I've ever heard any parent say, yeah, I got lost and I don't know where my child is. And next thing I know, I saw him and the child said to me, mom, dad, where were you? It's always the child that wanders from the parent, right? 
I remember as a young boy, the first time I got lost in a retail store. It was a store called Kmart. You may remember it. And it was just after the Star Wars movies came out. And right when I got to the doors of Kmart, I bolted to the toy aisle because I wanted to see what action figures were there. And I got there and I was amazed to discover the action figures and I was in awe of them. And I'm like, wow, you know, I got to have them all. And I'm taking them all off the thing, you know, probably $100 worth of action figures that my parents were never going to buy me. And then all of a sudden it realized after I was carrying all these little toys that my mom and dad were nowhere to be found. I remember getting mad at first. And then I remember the terror setting in. And so I found a worker there at Kmart, and they took me over to a stand that was portable. It was something that they moved from department to department, and out of the top of the stand, it had a pole, and on top of the pole, it had a flashing blue light. It was called the Kmart Blue Light, and wherever they placed it within the store, meant that they had a blue light special going on in the store, meaning things were on sale within that department. And I remember standing there, holding all my action figures, crying. I was a brave kid. And I remember the lady getting on the intercom, and you know, it was, remember the 70s, she had the big beehive hairdo, and she was all mad at me, and she's like, I could crack you, kid, from walking away from your mom and dad. And then she got on the horn and she basically said, the phone that is, please come pick up your child at the blue light. Come please pick up your child at the blue light. What's your name, kid? Eric. His name's Eric. This is what she did. You want to talk, nobody out of the 70s ever left the 70s with high self-esteem, trust me. And, um, And here comes my father and he goes, are you kidding me? I'm the only guy who comes to Kmart and shops for a kid at the Blue Light Special. (laughs) And then again, once again, to boost my self-esteem, as he's walking away, he goes, even the Blue Light Special is too much to purchase you. It's a terrifying thing to be lost. But we have to understand that that was the condition that we were in. We were separated from God. We were apart from God. Our sin was a gulf that we could never overcome in and of ourselves that totally devoided us from any relationship with God whatsoever. And it was God who found us from the very beginning. I like what one pastor wrote. He says, This is the same story shared today by every man and woman who has followed Jesus since the day described in Matthew 4. No one has ever been saved from their sins because they have pursued Jesus. Everyone who has ever been saved from their sins knows that they have been pursued by Jesus and their lives haven't been the same since. So who found who? Jesus found us. Number two, we need to consider why Jesus chose these men. And we want to believe that there was something about these men that were so attractive to Jesus that he said to them, I've got to have you. Because what you bring to the table is indispensable for my kingdom furtherance. I need your skill set in my body to further the purposes I have for the kingdom of God. 
We all maybe would like to believe that, but in actuality, Jesus chose them because Jesus chose them. There was nothing within these men that were inherently attractive to select for the purpose of discipleship. It wasn't something that they brought to this table. It was God's sovereignty who says, I choose you for my purposes. See, in this understanding, we're establishing the the parameters of the relationships with God from the beginning. And he makes it very clear, he chose them. Now, often you will hear messages by pastors who are well-meaning, who say, well, God chose fishermen because they were patient people in the pursuit of fishing for men. Patient people? Have you read about Peter? He was not the epitome of patience. How about John's and James, the other two that we heard, the sons of thunders? Oh, they were real patient as they were calling down brimstone and fire from heaven on other individuals. The sons of thunders, the epitome of patience. Well, they were fishermen and they knew what bait to choose to catch men. Really? Every time they went out into the lake apart from Jesus, they always came back empty-netted. Uh, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even be dependent on them for my food, let alone the furtherance of the kingdom of God. And they sh- he surely didn't pull these guys together because of their intellectual elitism. That they were the best thinkers of the time. Really? They were blue-collar guys more worried about going to the bar after work. There was nothing in these guys. He didn't pick these guys because of who they are. He picked these guys in spite of who they are. As one wrote about them, I love this, they do not have many qualities in their favor. They are lower class, rural, uneducated Galileans, likely not well respected and hardly the cultural elite. Moreover, their exceeding ignorance Narrow-minded ways, Jewish prejudice, and competitive pride make them the least spiritually qualified for the task to which Jesus is calling them to. But that's the point he went on to write. These men decidedly did not warrant Jesus' pursuit. Yet he comes to them, he walks up to them in the middle of their work, and invites them to follow him. And again, later, he solidifies this idea by saying, you did not choose me, but I have chosen you for the purposes that I have for you. This truly then allows these individuals to be classified under the one quality that is necessary. Foolish thing. For Paul writes very clearly that it's the foolish things that God has gathered together. And this might hurt your feelings, but that's you and I. And he does so purposely that he may confound the wise. They were qualified to be considered a foolish thing of this world. Why did Jesus choose these men? Because Jesus chose to choose these men. Number three. What were they to become? Well, he tells them very clearly from the beginning, I will make you fishers of men. Now, I want to get into this a little bit uh, deeper in some detail, but let me ask you to consider. He is not putting a call upon their life. He's putting a cause upon their life. A call would simply be, I am calling you, I am asking you to do this. And it almost could imply, if we read it in that limited scope, 
that here's what I'm asking you to do. Now go figure out how to do it and get it done. But here it is very clearly, I will make you fishers of men. It's not a call, it's a cause. This is what I'm going to do in and through you, for it will be no longer you who live, but I who live through you. It'll be a work of the Holy Spirit within you. It's not going to be you, it's going to be me through you. This is what I'm going to cause to do. And from the very beginning, now it is being set as an expectation that what is going to follow through their lives is not going to be a work of themselves, but a work of God through them. See, if we think that we bring something to the table that God needs for the furtherance of his kingdom then when we are set forth to go and to do something on God's command, we may be under the false impression that it's up to us to get it done by any means possible, using our talents and relying on ourselves to complete it. When God's saying, no, it's going to be me through you who's going to do it. I'm going to make you fishers of men. The call is truly a cause now the question then we all have to wrestle with, if you notice, within this, in, in number four, we have to wrestle with this next one. What were they going to leave behind? What were they going to leave behind? Now understand that culture. Their father, obviously with John and James, his, their father Zebedee is there in the boat with them. It's a business he started. Peter uh, probably, most likely, inherited his business from his father, because that's the way career paths were decided at that time. It was by uh, genealogy. Whatever your father did, it was most likely that that's what you were going to do also. Hey, folks, I want to be very honest with you from the beginning here. That call to follow Jesus and to become fishers of men was going to require them to leave everything behind. Everything. It was going to require them to leave behind their professions their possessions, their dreams, their ambitions, their family, their friends, safety and security. They were going to have to leave all to follow him. In a world where everything revolves around self, and the world tells you to protect yourself, promote yourself, preserve yourself, entertain yourself, comfort yourself, take care of yourself. Jesus, on the other hand, says, no, slay yourself. And that's exactly what happened to these guys ultimately. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified in Greece. James was beheaded. And John was exiled. It cost them everything from the beginning. Last week we challenged you with a passage out of Luke's Gospel, Luke 14, 25 through 33, where Jesus stated very clearly and openly to a crowd and that was following him, and this is one of those moments that he thinned the crowd by what he said. And if you'd like to read with me, listen to what he says in Luke 14, 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all those who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is still yet a great way off, he sends out a delegate and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Those are heavy. Those aren't something that we should take lightly. So the question that we are posed with now is now that I am a Christian, what is God requiring me to abandon here For the pursuit of him. He's asking you to be willing to abandon everything for the pursuit of him. That's what he's getting to. That's what he's driving at. As Paul later says that our only response to all that God has done for us is but to lay ourselves as living sacrifices before our Lord. That's the only proper response to and our, our spiritual worship before God. Whatever it may be, in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds, we should be willing to lay it down for the pursuit of Christ. As he asks us to, we should be willing to lay it down for his sake. I love what David Platt said concerning this, and I want to read a paragraph from him. Why then would we think that becoming a Christian means anything less for us today? And why would we not die to ourselves in order to live in Christ? Yes, there is a cost that accompanies stepping out of casual, comfortable, cultural Christianity, but it's worth it. More aptly put, he is worth it. Jesus worthy of far more than intellectual belief. There is a, there's so much more to following him than just monumentous spirituality. There is an indescribable joy to be found, deep satisfaction to be felt, an eternal purpose to be fulfilled in dying to ourselves and living for him. In my life, I was one, at one point confronted with such a decision, I believe. And I'd like to quickly share this with you. After graduating high school, and as many of you know, I became a Christian my senior year of high school. My mother and father always wanted me to become a teacher, an educator. They just felt that that was where I would end up. Now, I will tell you that they were both educators themselves. My father was a principal for 30 years in the city of Chicago, and my mother was a teacher in the city of Chicago. My parents always wanted me to become an educator. And I remember after graduating high school, that August after my graduation, driving over to the college in which I was going to attend with a check for the first payment of my tuition with me in my pocket. And I came to the parking lot of that college and I sat there in my car 
because I felt divided at that moment. I felt torn at that moment. I was a young believer in Jesus. And before me was a college education that I knew my parents wanted me to have, that they were providing for, and yet I didn't feel led to do it. I didn't feel that this is what God wanted me to do. I was very reserved and hesitant in doing it. So as I sat there in my car in that parking lot, I began weeping because I knew that I was going to make a decision and I was going to let somebody down. It was either going to be my parents or more importantly, my Lord. Because I just didn't feel that he wanted me to go. I didn't have much more to base it on. I was so new as a believer. And I cried out to Jesus at that moment. And I just cried out to him and I said, Lord, help me. Please, I don't know what to do. I surrender all before you, Lord. Take me wherever you would have me to go. And that day I drove out of that parking lot, weeping, knowing that I would have to tell my parents that I don't believe I should attend college. 20 years later, every single morning or every day that I go out and I walk behind my house on a trail next to a lake that is behind my home, I walk past that parking lot where I prayed And 20 years later, God has done an extraordinary thing. And just up until about 15 years ago, I was still disappointed because I had let my parents down. And I didn't know what or how it was going to resolve itself. Every day I was reminded that God said, you committed your life to me and what have I done since? You're serving me. You have a beautiful family. You have a dog that you're taking care of. That wasn't my will, by the way. (laughs) But your whole life now, I have provided for you because you surrendered all. You trusted me. And I, I remember praying, Lord, help me resolve this issue with my parents. And two weeks later, after praying that, I was at my parents' house ministering to them, usually taking care of their lawn, etc. And I was sitting with my dad, having a cup of uh, iced tea. And I said, Dad, I'm, I'm truly sorry that I never became the teacher you expected me to become. And he looked at me, and he said to me, you became a teacher that I never thought you'd ever become. And what you do is greater than any educational pursuit in a classroom. I was blown away by the grace of God. But I remember laying everything before him at that moment. The last thing we need to ask ourselves then this morning in closing, verse 20. What was the time frame of their response? Read it out loud for me. Immediately. And let me tell you what that means in the Greek so you have a better understanding of that word. It means immediately they dropped everything and they followed him. It's extraordinary to consider what these men 
left at that moment to follow after Jesus Christ. Becoming a follower of Jesus required them to leave what they were pursuing to adopt what he wanted them to pursue. Following Jesus for you and I means that we must begin a new pursuit. For them, it was becoming fishers of men. Each one of you and I here is a billboard for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And every time we go into the world, every time we go into our workplace, every time we go into our classroom, every time we have an opportunity to interact with those who do not know Jesus, we should consider in our minds that the place that we are in is the mission field that God has sent us to, to make fishers of men, to be a billboard for the gospel to allow them to read that sign, to let them hear and to discover you're lost, you're in darkness, you're wandering in death, but there's life in Christ. And what separates you from him is that sin that is in your life. And if you would repent and believe, you can have eternal life in him. I think it's amazing from our text this morning that these men, in abandonment of everything, had no idea where they were going to be led or what they were going to be required to do next. And yet, they obeyed immediately. God desires our immediate adherence to his word, our immediate obedience. They heard that call, that invitation, to be made fishers of men, and they immediately heeded to it. What we're seeing is a heart attitude that you and I must have, that we at any moment are willing to abandon everything for the invitation, the call of God upon our lives because he wants to cause something to happen in and through our lives for his glory, no matter what it is. We should have the hard attitude saying, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. And whenever you do place that call, I will respond immediately. As one said in closing, as Jesus transforms the thoughts and the desires of our lives, he revolutionizes our very reason for living. Understanding this reality is essential to knowing and experiencing the will of God as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Follow me, he says, to a new pursuit.